um, I, I didn't read every word of it, but I read much of it, called Acedia and Me. Did you see it? It's Kathleen Norris. Um, and Acedia, I didn't know before, is a kind of a, uh, it's a kind of a depression. Most people will, will confuse it with depression. It's not, uh, she makes a difference between a clinical depression where, uh, that has certain kinds of characteristics and acedia, which is more like, I don't care about anything. It's you lose your appetite for things to be good. It doesn't matter to, it's a kind of uh, very deep indifference where nothing seems to matter. And she talks about herself. It's called acedia and me, like she's had, a, and she's had a long relationship with it. And really, it's a it's a compendium of um, what different people have said about it, because uh, uh, monastics have written about it a lot. People who, in the middle of a, a dedicated monastic uh, vocation, have a period of time in which they think, "What is this all about? This is not for anything. This is meaningless. What am I doing here?" Uh, and they lose sight of that there was something that they wanted and something that they hoped would happen as a result of their practice. And that they lose the sight of that, the whole thing becomes meaningless. And I thought, well, maybe for a while, I thought, well, maybe this only has to do with monastics who have taken on that particular kind of a lifestyle. But I think it happens for everybody, or at least as I read it, did that never happen to you in your life? That when you suddenly thought to yourself, what's the purpose of this whole thing? What am I doing? I mean, there's a way where and with the most simple things that we do suddenly become meaningless. You say, I'm doing this again. This is ridiculous. What is this about? And you say, yesterday I had um, zest for life. And I was thinking about, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll plan this, I'll plan that. And all of a sudden, it's like losing your appetite for food, but losing your appetite for life. Anybody ever had that? Yeah, had that? And what happened to it? Past? <laughs> I don't mean to laugh about it, Tish, because in the middle of it happening, it's a terrible thing, and it's very hard to recognize and to not take seriously. Because it just, like, like any kind of doubt, feeling, you know, what's, what's the point of this? Like any kind of a doubt feeling, it's hard to recognize as a feeling. Because if you have a negative feeling, you can recognize that I'm mad about this, or irritable, or, or I need this, I desire this, I crave this, or this frightens me. But So there's like a, 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 um, a physical feeling that we can recognize. This is fear, this is craving, this is antipathy, and this is what it's about. But that kind of a feeling of, ah, where, yeah. Well, it's interesting you bring this up, because I have experienced this. So a couple of things come to mind. One is attachment. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying not to be attached to avoid suffering, mm -hmm. then what's it all about? Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think of the song, What's It All About Healthy? Yeah. But, um, and then the other thing that goes with that is when we wish each other well and we, we wish or yearn, those things... I've been trying to get away from yearning, attachment, wishing. I've been so, if you go down these paths of non-attachment, you can neutralize the, uh, 
<laughs> I remember we met last week and you told me your name and I'm, I forgot it. Melinda. Melinda, thank you. I'm glad you're back, Melinda. That particular line between attachment and craving, it comes up a lot when people talk about the Dharma, you know, that I don't want to be attached because then I'll have pain. How do we care without being attached? Or do we say, listen, I'll care, I'll be attached, and I'll suffer? But the suffering will pass. So how do we modulate that? Because at, at some point, where the line between equanimity and indifference is, uh, is where uh, in the text they talk about, I'd like to have equanimity. And the near enemy of equanimity, the, 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 uh, uh, the enemy of equanimity is frenzy or uh, you know, the opposite of equanimity. And the, the term near enemy is used to say, this is something that looks like that, but it's really not that. And indifference, they say, is a near enemy of equanimity because it looks like equanimity is nothing to me, but it actually has a little bit of negativity in it. Ugh. You know, like when, um, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, it's like teenagers a little bit, you know. Say so whatever, you know. Whatever doesn't actually mean whatever. It means have it your way, you know, okay, but it's got a little bit of negativity in it. Whatever means, okay, this is what's happening. You know, it's, very, it's a very fine line, and I think it's one that each, each person finds because, for themselves, because I think that everybody's got a, a, um, a predisposition or not a predisposition to kind of, uh, to... Um, Kind of the negativity that says, oh, "I don't like this." It's, it's, uh, I, I think of myself as a uh, uh, easily cheered melancholic. That uh, <laughs> no, that, no, seriously, I think about this a lot. Uh, I better get out my nose before I say more than I want to. But uh, I think about that a lot. I am easily made melan feel melancholy about things. I mean, about the same things that you might feel this or that about. I just, uh, my eldest grandson just graduated from university. So uh, at the same time, I think that's fabulous, you know. Look at that. He's a grown-up man. I was there two minutes ago while he got born, and now he finished. And on the other hand, I think, whoa, he's already finished with school, and now he's got a job, and he's settled down in a life. That's great. He's got a job. He's in a life. That's great. But there's a way of saying, well, what's going to happen now, the time of discovery. But, you know, you can play it both ways. And my, my mind is ready to play it on the downside. My teaching colleague, James Barras, who probably won't mind if I tell this story because the story is 23 years old, 24 now, thinking about how old Adam is. Uh, and James is out touring the country with his new book about, um, what's it called? Awakening Joy. Awakening Joy because uh, uh, as the uh, sincere and uh, dedicated Buddhist that he was 24 years ago, when Adam was born, I remember him telling me that when they just came home from Adam's birth and they were together, Jane and James, they'd been waiting for this child for so long, and here's this beautiful baby. And it was at that point, sleeping, and Jane was holding it, and Adam said, uh, and James said to uh, said to his teaching uh, cohort, he said, you know, I looked at him and I thought, from here on, it's downhill all the way. 
and, and I look back and I think James would never say that now. You know, that was a new, uh, that was his new interest in Buddhism showing itself as everything is difficult, everything is challenging. And maybe also because borderline melancholy, you know, from here on, it's, it's going to be challenging because it is going to be challenging. You can't get it right and keep it right. Hard to know. Maybe we'll start with this. Uh, where, whenever your grandchildren come, Marty, don't worry, because we will stop at that point. You know what we'll do? We'll start with these two other blessings that you brought and I had. So we'll do this. Already You're already on. <laughs> had I known, I would have said something better. Um, <laughs> huh? Now, here we go. I want to talk about, because really I thought about it, that as we share those prayers together, they're really, if we said them in a form of a blessing, in a ritual form, we'd say, may my, I would say, may my granddaughter thrive in her experience in Spain. May my grandson, now that he's out from school, thrive in his new work environment. May this happen, may that happen. And I was thinking about the ability to bless, the ability to hope that something good is gonna happen for somebody is itself redemptive. It lifts up the mind from its own preoccupation of melancholy, of oh, this could happen, that could happen, or this is happening, or that did happen. And to really say about one's life, my life, it, my, 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 my work in my life is to try to um, augment my ability to wish steadfastly for the well-being of others, which is when we thought last week, uh, too bad we don't have those uh, Norman Fisher's grace. So I'll read you both of these graces. This is, um, this is Norman's, written at Green Gulch 10 years ago, at least. As we make ready to eat this food, we remember with gratitude the many people, tools, animals, and plants, air and water, sky and earth, turned in the wheel of living and dying whose joyful exertion provide our sustenance, sustenance this day. May we, with the blessing of this food, join our hearts to the one heart of the world in awareness and love. And may we, together with everyone, realizing the path, realize the path of awakening and never stop making effort for the benefit of others. Okay. Reading now Ajahn Amro's Grace. Let us reflect on the efforts that brought us this food and reflect how it comes to us. Reflect on our virtue and practice and whether we are worthy of this offering. Regard greed as the obstacle to freedom of mind. Regard this meal as medicine to sustain our life. For the sake of enlightenment, we now receive this food. First, this food is for the three treasures. Second, it is for our teachers, parents, community, and all beings everywhere. Third is for all beings on all realms. Thus we eat this food with everyone. We eat to stop all evil, to practice good, to care for all beings, and to accomplish the Buddha way. Lovely, aren't they? By the way, yeah? That's Ajahn Amaro, who is one of our teachers in this community who has just left 
to go live in England and be the abbot of a monastery right outside of London. We often use the, the uh, Norman's Grace. In my family, we had an art project uh, a couple of years ago. My grandchildren and I, we took um, colored construction paper and doubled it over like booklets, like prayer booklets, and we put the grace inside. And on the outside cover, we took a tremendous variety of family pictures over all the years and put a different photo on each of them. And we keep a stack, and then when we're all together, we deal them out like cards. And so everybody can say the grace together. They get a different picture each time. And then they can remember, look at you when you were little, look at you when you were little. So uh, that one lives in my house. The point that I read as I read the two of them now is that both of them have in it gratitude as the first thing. Look, I'm about to eat. It means I have enough to eat and I have enough health to want to eat. That's a miracle. That's great. Gratitude for that, which in some way maybe made the fundamental energy that lifts up the mind and the heart so that it has the energy or the desire or the impulse to bless. And then the impulse to do something, to give back for it. I'll take this food, but I'll make effort. Never stop making effort on behalf of all beings. It's not only that it's a, like a, that's like a nice thing to take on, but I think it's the impulse that comes into human minds when we have enough. When we are satisfied, then we say, what can I do for other people? I think that's the natural impulse in human beings, and I think it's so rewarding and so gratifying to discover that in ourselves, that we feel good enough to wish well for somebody else. You know, when I started to teach meditation in, in the 1980s, uh, the zeitgeist was such that when you went somewhere, and especially when it was going to be a meditation class, people would say the first thing, now we'll meditate, and everybody would close their eyes immediately before they heard that instruction, close your eyes. But often they'd sit down on the floor right away. Now we'll meditate means sit on the floor and cross your knees and close your eyes. And now, as much as not, I tell people, sit down and keep your eyes open. First of all, here, maybe I close mine because I won't be distracted, but I tell people in general in the world, we can meditate in a variety of ways, but let's think about meditation as paying attention to what's happening. And in the world, we keep our eyes open and we look around. And the insight that we want to see, that I want to see all the time, is that everybody's life is one way or another just like mine, you know? We talk about that so often if you start a, a conversation with somebody on the, on the airplane who's next to you, then their story is not the same. But their experience is the same. Something happened. Someone told me that all stories have the same plot. Once upon a time, then, suddenly, and finally, Da, da, da. And they lived happily ever after. That any story that you read starts out, everything was okay, then it wasn't, and then by some grace, by something that happened, it was okay again. That was that's everybody's story. And is that not not, not true? You know, I once uh, I once was was at a uh, 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 um, 
some sort of celebration of something or other two decades ago, probably, seated, seated at a table with George Lucas. And someone asked him why he had to have uh, always some kind of violence and some sort of a crisis in uh, movies. Couldn't you just make nice movies where everybody was <laughs> friends with everybody all the time and that th there wasn't any great shootout? And he said, no, there aren't any stories like that. Those aren't the stories that people want to hear. First of all, that's not what happens. And second of all, it's not interesting that nobody would go to a movie about that. You want to go to a movie where everything's all right, then it's not all right, and then they fix it up. And that's a story that everybody wants to hear, one way or another. And it has a good end. There was a, there's a line that I read. <clears throat> I wanted to read, you, read to you. And I had it all underlined. This is a book called Skylark that somebody recommended to me. That um, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to find it now, and I had underlined it so carefully. Wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Ah. Babies are here. Good. So it gives me a little time to find. 